Across the distant reaches of the Milky Way, past the Helux Nebula, circling the edge of a protostar, a red-hot bar sits in the shadow of a cold asteroid. This is Sci-Fi and Tonic. Pull up a seat and order a drink with your hosts, Tan Tuncha and Don Dimish. Welcome to Sci-Fi and Tonic with uh, Ton and Dawn, the creators of uh, Void Armada. And we're uh, joined, too, by Chippy, the community manager for Void Armada. Uh, today, we're talking space money. So how did they afford to build the Death Star again and again and again? So today, we're kicking things off, and uh, Ton's going to kick it off. I'm sure you have a great anecdote this week for space money economies in space yeah there you go okay so we have anastasius okay this is fifth century byzantine empire so anastasius is a great emperor uh, he's underrated why because he basically re- he reformed the tax system he he reformed the coinage and he proved to be a frugal ruler. So by the end of his reign, he left a substantial surplus. And, and after Anastasius, we have Justin I and then the famous Justinian I, the Great. So Justinian is pretty known to many people. He built uh, the second version of Hagia Sophia, which is the kind of the current version we have right now. Before it was just, uh, just like a building with a wooden ceiling, so it was nothing like today's. And he built so many things. And then he realized that he wanted to, you know, reform Roman Empire again. And he tried to conquer Italy, which he did. And then he kept building and then, you know, like spending this money. It's quite debatable that he was a, if he was a great emperor or not. I mean, the word justice comes from his name. He is responsible for corpus juris civilis, which is the body of civil law. We still use the kind of law that he actually formed. But he spent the money, okay? <laughs> he bankrupted the empire. <laughs> and then uh, his successors along the line found the coffers empty. So, and then there was like a sort of a decline of Byzantine Empire. Basically, Byzantine Empire never had the, the, the borders it had at the time of Justinian. That was the largest ever that it, that it would get. And it would just get smaller and smaller eventually. So, but we'll come back to that, okay? We'll, we'll see as we go through sci-fi, we'll just look at some of the leaders and maybe we can decide which one is Justinian, which one is Anastasius, you know? I want to kick off with, with my Star Wars discussion because I think it's hilarious that... So if you look at Star Wars in, in, the, uh, in the original series... You have the Death Star, right? You know, it's it's a it's a mega structure. It just destroys planets, which, by the way, is completely unnecessary. I mean, if you remember in last week's episode, we discussed like kinetic energy. Like, you just need to like hurl a huge asteroid to a planet to destroy it. You don't you don't need a Death Star. But I mean, it's cool and it just throws out beams and you know it's more dramatic that way, obviously. But the Emperor Darth Sidious 
had the resources of the whole empire, of the whole planets and everything. So he could pay his soldiers. And then we have the new series. We have uh, 7, 8, and 9. And then there you have the, uh, the, the First Order, which are like outcasts in the universe. And they come back with a Death Star that's like 10 times bigger than the original one. And the question is, how, how the hell did they build that thing? You know, with what resources? How, did, how do they pay their soldiers? And then in the ninth episode, you have the Emperor Darth Sidious, who's like like undead kind of form, you know, and then he can barely speak. And he just resides on this like one planet, which is like devoid of resources and everything. And he builds a huge armada, each armed with uh, planet killer uh, beams and everything. You know, where, where does he find all that money and that energy to run those ships, the, the fuel, the materials and everything? It's just completely irrelevant to the story. You know, we just need a big badass armada so that it looks cool on the screen, you know. But I think at, at some point it's still acceptable in a way that, I mean, it's like a, it's a tale, right? It's kind of a tale that... You know, there was a huge armada, you know, they were like, they were all planet destroyers. And so, I mean, after that, you know, who cares? And then you have books like Foundation, which we discussed on our very first episode. And Foundation is interesting because, I mean, I'm not talking about the TV series because TV series is not there yet. The story is far from there. But what happens in the book and the series, which is not spoilers, which is kind of given, is that the Empire is failing. And Harry Seldon, who's a mathematician, who, who develops a science called uh, psychohistory that predicts future. We'll come back to this, actually. Uh, we kind of discussed this with Doan about predicting economical outcomes uh, with, with algorithms. But he, he predicts the empire will fall. And, and then he says, we need to found a foundation that will preserve the human knowledge, culture, and everything. So they, they just go to a planet called Terminus, and they, they settle there. However, it turns out that it's not just a foundation to, to preserve human culture, but actually it was the beginning of the second galactic empire that they're building there. So... Here is the interesting thing in the series. So what happens in these books is that the, the foundation just gets bigger and bigger. It just engulfs more planets, you know, eventually turns into a second empire by using economy, not by using, quote unquote, you know, sword, but in the way of economy. So they become a huge economical power. They become a big powerhouse. That's how... They convince the planets to join their side, which totally makes sense, because that's how it works. It was not different in the past, and it's not going to change in the future. You need a good economy to run an empire. And uh, I remember on the first episode, Doan and I discussed that if there could be a way to predict the economy, you know, predicting future is, is you know, a lot of scientists think that it's kind of impossible because there are so many un unknown variables. There is human factor. There's the butterfly effect. Uh, you don't know what one man can do. It's just one person's action might ignite just a whole rebellion, uh, which we've seen it happening like in like 
uh, Arab Spring and things like that, we kind of discussed if economy can be predicted somehow using algorithms. And Don, if I remember correctly, you said that it's not really possible either. Yeah, I think because, I mean, if you think about it, if you can predict the economy with algorithm right now, if they predicted the economy, then everybody would be rich, you know, <laughs> and it's not impossible, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If a developer develops a, an algorithm and that were completely, then all the market will crash in a moment <laughs> because <laughs> the world spreads like <laughs> in light, light speed. So uh, it, it, it's impossible. <laughs> yeah. So predicting the future in that way is, is you know it's pretty unlikely and um but obviously the foundation series is is more than that it's just that that prediction part in the series is just like more like a background thing after a while especially and um and when you look at sci-fi in general one thing that really interested me was Isaac Asimov's uh, the robot series it's four books and they're like short stories as well uh, just a quick recap that uh, I wonder if any of you read any of the robot series at all, uh, like Caves of Steel was the first one. Here is the uh, plot there. Um, there is a robotic society. So there is the Earth, and then there are like spacer worlds. So spacer worlds are planets uh, colonized by humans. Uh, and on the spacer worlds, there is a robotic economy, except the Earth. So robots on Earth is forbidden, at least not on the surface. So Caves of Steel is like Earth is covered with like a metal cave, you know, it's just people do not see the daylight anymore. So robots work outside on the surface, like they do farming and everything, but they're not uh, like in servitude. But the spacer worlds, they do have a robotic economy. So this is an interesting actually topic because this could become a reality. So any kind of job that's done by you know, like hard labor, your gardener, people who like fix the pipes and like gather the garbage and everything that like the jobs that actually you don't want to do are done by robots in, in spacious societies. And people are basically rich, you know, <laughs> they're like, they don't need to worry about much. And people like live very far away from each other. And they, don't, they cannot stand being next to each other, like with the smell, everything. So they speak with holograms all the time. I wonder what you guys think, because uh, do you think that a kind of robotic economy would work, like all the hard labor being done by them, and we just do the fun stuff like, you know, art and coding, and you know, maybe not even coding, who knows? <laughs> uh, do you believe that that would work? Have you ever read, it's not necessarily like sci-fi, but um, was it Kurt Vonnegut wrote Player Piano? Have you ever read that? No. No, uh, that sort of uh, predicts or like has like sort of a society that is modeled after the Great Depression in a, in the United States, where um, sort of automation has pushed people out of the workforce. And that book sort of predicted this like really big delineation between the haves and the have-nots. So it was sort of like government government work came and like made up for people um it was like it predates the idea of like universal basic income which is sort of what a um 
like the society that you're talking about is more based off of the idea of like that well that value doesn't come from scarcity value comes from something else so like in a society where you like eliminate labor or work as related to economic gains then like you have to structure society differently so right so then if you if you have like robots or whatever doing labor then the the way that people make money or the way that people earn money for or even need money for like basic needs like has to fundamentally change you know yeah you're right and and this is interesting because um that kind of being obsolete was actually uh if i'm not mistaken that was the huge topic when during the american elections the one where trump was elected if i remember correctly uh, hillary said yeah people will eventually be obsolete and then uh, trump said no they won't be but that was a lie and people a lot of jobs eventually uh, in america and in the world as well will be obsolete you know uh, there will be self driving taxis you know there's ai and there's like robotics and everything uh this is a big subject that a lot of people scare and this happened before i understand why the book mentioned you know by why the book is on that because during uh these times for instance like maybe maybe the great depression or or uh, industrial revolution a lot of people thought oh are just like jobs are going to be stolen then they just like people worried and eventually it kind of settled but there is a time there is a i think a transient period uh where yeah some people eventually will be obsolete but the next generation will pick it up but i don't think it lasts quite long anyway so in near future in our lives you know a lot of jobs will be obsolete and it has already begun you know you you have like like ai composing songs composing music you know even musicians will be <laughs> at least some of them will be obsolete maybe people who are especially doing like uh like tv work you know who are not necessarily putting out albums and everything maybe even they i was on a on a um a clubhouse chat some while ago the subject was about ai and music and people who are like experienced in the area told me really interesting things like uh for instance they're like ai who can compose k-pop songs i mean which makes sense because they're quite formulated anyway but i heard that there is an ai that can compose um fugues like uh, baroque fugues like bach and what they did is that they made a kind of an experiment there was like a concert somewhere in europe and then the half of the set was uh like from baroque uh, musicians like bach or vivaldi and the, the other half uh, they played uh, compositions made by an ai and and later they asked the audience what they felt about the music you know how did you feel throughout the you know concert whatever and they said they really felt emotional during the um part where they played the ai's compositions again fugues are like quite formulated they're not like they have they have a sort of a, a narrower scope in terms of classical composition but this is very interesting so i think there is a lot of worry maybe even we should be worried in a way uh there will be ai doing our jobs eventually and we we could become obsolete as like designers and creators and you know uh, at some point 
and it has already begun especially like people who are like composing music for advertisements now people started to prefer like cheaper options so if ai starts to compose music for adverts for like for no money <laughs> almost you just like pay like monthly fee for the ai you know which is like i don't know 50 dollars or something and it's good enough then maybe people will just go for it i mean that some some people will do for for sure i think there's so like I, a, a a big difference though between like say taking an ai algorithm and feeding it a bunch of baroque music and it recognizes the patterns and the creation and like all that stuff and then it models baroque music it's just like look at these things and make something that's like it and it it can do it but it's like something totally different to be like now go from like from like neoclassical and invent baroque music do you know what i mean like i feel like that uh that attitude really misses the point of the value of like creation or the act of creation you know because it's always like when when you look at like say the olympics and there's a world record and somebody comes and they break like the world record for sprinting like a certain distance once everyone realizes that that thing is possible then the next year and the year after you're going to see other people hit that record or come close to it you know what i mean or hit like the previous record but now that people know that something is possible or they create something or they invent something like people can take that but it's like something totally different to synthesize something from scratch to create like you know like van gogh or whatever you know like to take like a totally different approach to painting and then all sorts of people afterwards are like oh man we we could have been doing that the whole time or like how long it took human beings to transition their art from like a two-dimensional thing to like three-dimensional like going from like portraiture to like a three-quarter view of the face like for a long time people just didn't they just drew them as like profile pictures you know what i mean in like a two-dimensional space and then suddenly everyone's like oh man we can draw in like three-dimensional space and we can model the face like a a frontward facing person do you know so i feel like i feel like there is a lot of fear associated with like the idea of AI, like AI coming for our jobs or whatever. But it, all AI can do right now is copy what we have already created. And it only does that because we feed it a whole bunch of stuff. And it can look at a whole, whole bunch of different things at the same time where human beings focus on like one thing at a time. And then so – and we like somehow – interpret that as like being better than us or somehow being better than the human brain which i don't see i don't see that at all it's just like taking a uh like taking a little matchbox car and saying like it's just like a real car it's not at all you know what i mean uh, I totally agree with you. I mean, we actually we should discuss this in an episode called AI. But I agree with you. Actually, I gave the example at the time. I gave the example of Nick Cave, and I said, "An AI can only copy Nick. You can say, hey, make a music like Nick Cave,' but you cannot be Nick Cave out of the blue because he is Nick Cave because he went through all of those experiences as a human being. So, 
you know, this becomes a discussion about AGI, which is artificial general intelligence. So you need like five senses, you need maybe like a body or everything. So like Nick Cave can compose those songs because, because you know, he lost his son. So, I mean, this affected him so deeply that he wrote like these incredible tracks, music later. Again, an AI could only copy that. I totally agree with you there. But going back to the economy side of things, I wonder if a robotic society or, or let's say, okay, th because these books are kind of old, they were written in 50s and 60s, so uh, Asimov was thinking they're quite literally, you know, they're like human uh, robots, which you don't need, okay? If you want to plow your fields, you just need a robot that's like a tractor, but that can like, um, you know, that knows what, what needs to be done in terms of plowing a field. You don't need to make it... You don't need that robot to also cook some food, you know, for you, because you have a, a robot that that only cooks food for you. You know, you just you don't need like human-like robots. But he was thinking very literally, and also it's it becomes more dramatic. So we're not again discussing the reality of the things too much here, but it's fiction at, at the end of the day. But but the point is, I wonder if it can become a utopian society. Why? Because I'm I'm thinking about like Plato's book called Atlantis, and I've read that book, which is a very interesting book because it, the book is not it's uh, written in a way that it's conversation between people. So someone who had survived from the catastrophe in Atlantis survives and comes to the mainland somehow, and then he talks to this other person. And tells about Atlantis that he that the things he's seen, and I read it quite a while ago. But I remember this part really clearly. That in one part it says that they were workers in Atlantis that that did not require food or payment. So I'm like, you know, robots. <laughs> That's what I thought. You know, ah, robots. <laughs> he was thinking about robots. So. I mean, even Plato thought about this a while ago. A lot of people thought, oh, this is Plato's talking about real Atlantis. I doubt it. Could be true, but I don't think they were like robots back then. You know, I doubt it. If there were, we would have found their remains somehow. Uh, even there was something like, like an island like Atlantis. Some people say it's Santorini in Greece. It, basically, it's a book about a utopian society. And you have like canals... Reminds me of Amsterdam a little bit, where it just, you know, very functional, especially when you have like a maritime trading. Um, and then you look at these things in, in the book, and it's actually quite, it's a very short book, by the way. You can like read it in like an hour or two. Uh, and it's an easy read because it's like, like a conversation. So, and I believe that Isaac Asimo was quite inspired by that book when he was thinking about that kind of robotic society. So you have like, okay, it's a kind of a grim subject, but during the 19th century, 18th, 19th century, uh, in Americas in general, not just in the United States, uh, you, had, you had like slave economy. And it was very lucrative. That's the point. That's why it kept going and that's why it just lasted for so long and some countries gave up like much later than the others because it was very lucrative that's the thing because those you know you don't need to pay them and you need to only feed them just very minimal uh it's horrible it's terrible but 
if you apply it to economics, okay, just replace them with robots who don't mind being slaves, you know, uh, because you limit their AI to just to the jobs that they got to do that they don't need to decide for themselves. In Isaac Asimov's book, the robots have something called the three laws of robotics. Again, we need to come back to the to this subject in robots and sci-fi episode, which is going to be in the future. But just very quickly, the three, three laws of robotics are these. The first law of robotics is that a robot may not harm a human being or uh, harm come to come to it, you know, needs to protect humans, okay? The second law of robotics is a robot needs to do what a human orders, but this must not conflict with the first law. The third law is that a robot must preserve its existence, but this must not conflict with the first or the second law. And there is the zeroth law, which was added later by another robot, but it's another subject. But at the end of the day, if any robot kind of goes out of these rules it just breaks down so you have this perfect situation you have these the servitude of the robots and then you might end up having a lucrative society but it could work in the future so here's another one okay there's a really famous uh book by ursula le guin called the dispossessed um i love that book Ursula Le Guin is quite famous for her Earthsea series, which is kind of like Harry Potter, but a little kind of heavier than that. And it's not as easy reading as Harry Potter, but I had read those and I love those. And then, you know, I just went through and read other Ursula Le Guin books. So the, this process is not an easy read, but it's very interesting. So in, the, in this book, there are like um, two planets called Anares and Uras, so one of them is capitalist with a patriarchal system, and the other one is actually is ruled by ideological kind of structure called anarcho-syndicalism. It's basically anarchist, you know, hence the name. I've read that a long while ago, and I remember some of these details like, for instance, you cannot own anything. You cannot own your house. Uh, you cannot, because there was like this, um, in, you know, instance in the book that there's like a little kid playing with the other kids and this kid like takes the toy from them and said this is mine and and uh, his parent comes and says no you know there is no mine you know nothing can be yours this toy is everybody's you know this is just you need to share okay and there are kind of societies like that pure on earth you know we're not needing to go to the sci-fi part of it like in israel you have uh, those kind of uh, anarchic uh, societies uh, which are kind of similar. This is kind of a subject in, in Wikipedia, like anarchism in Israel. So they're basically they're anarcho-communists and um, they're, they're called kibbutz and it's a movement. So these are libertarian socialist kind of people who share things and and uh, they also like kind of share the children as well. They share the children's education, so they don't even own their own children. And uh, it's pretty interesting, and that's how they live. So in this book, this possessed, it's like that. So these people, they live in anarchy. However, the thing interesting about this book is that it's not a utopia. You know, they're actually struggling. I mean, if that was a utopia, then you know there would not be any drama in the book, but. 
obviously they are struggling. They're just trying to figure it out. I think uh, I think it's achievable. It's just gotta be like divorced from the idea of labor creating like the labor as the source for like getting like food and sustainability and like stuff like that. Cause as we move towards things like, uh, say like solar power or other sort of what we consider like green energy kind of things, like eliminate the element of scarcity or the element of like how much energy it takes to create energy or to create like the things that we need, you know, like efficiency will step in. I think, I think it's possible. It just has to be a lot of changes in philosophy and psychology and like the mindset that we create. You know, an end of like tribalism. It's possible in the future. Yeah, I think so. But I wonder that it's going to be technologically kind of backwards, because um, in order to achieve like high technology you need to mine precious metals all the time. Kind of tricky, because when that happens, when you have like hard labor, I think if you go to a kibbutz, uh, you will see people like farming and then doing all those things, you know. But uh, if, if you're like mining and doing all that dirty hard work, then you start to have a kind of inequality inside that society. So... For instance, in kibbutzes, uh, they're not technologically advanced. You know, they don't use like iPhones and everything. I think if you want to go for that kind of anarchic socialist kind of structure, maybe you might need to just forget about like advanced technology a little bit. Um, I mean, you'll still have the knowledge of obviously like wind, as you said, like solar energy and wind energy, and they're like easy to achieve, and you don't need like hard labor to achieve those things but if you're going to go for like high tech then you need to mine these really precious resources but well, is it, is as it you part said of that though, like perceived value or saying that like like the perception that one job is like more valuable or deserves to be economically rewarded more than another type of job like if we got to a social point where like because i mean some people are like really good at being mechanics like i've tried to fix my own car and i'm not a great mechanic type person you know like so in my situation like uh, a mechanic uh to fix my car is of great value to me you know is it just not like the economic perception that falls under capitalism to say that one job deserves higher pay rate than like another type of job. Uh, I see. So you're saying that um, uh, people who mine the precious metals are paid kind of more in that kind of society. That's what you're saying, right? So, I mean, well, we're talking uh, about utopia at the end of the day. <laughs> it just sounds right. ridiculous in a way in today's society. But yeah, I, I, if you got to a point of like, say, like a utopian society of where people's basic needs were being met irregardless of the type of job that they do or uh, that sort of thing that the their like people's access to economic 
resources was not defined by someone else's perception of what their value is, their intrinsic value is. Like to me, that that is like the sort of uh, ideological basis of a utopian society to me. Yeah, so actually, let's make a thought experiment, right? Because I was thinking about that. At some point, I was, I was uh, trying to write a um, sci-fi story uh, about a, the first colony on Mars. Okay, but we're not talking about the scientists, okay? We're talking about, like, um, like normal people now going. So we, let's suppose that there is a city now, the first city on Mars. Uh, the, the Martian atmosphere is, is like, partially uh, terraformed, like you can kind of breathe at least in in the in the uh, in where at least where the city is you know that's got, you have breathable air you have some water okay that's kind of it's not like a torture to live okay let's suppose that's the way and suppose that you have maybe like 20,000 30,000 people living in a city on Mars okay i mean you can't keep getting um, new uh, colonists, but basically because of like the distance and the travel window to Mars, uh, so you can only travel every two years. So every two years you have new colonists. Okay, you you have new blood, and that's the situation. And obviously, at the beginning, you have scientists. That the first people who are going to go there are scientists and engineers and all those kind of people who are going to set up that environment. And and uh, and then now you have like workers, you have like artisans, you have artists teachers, like uh, administrators, clerks, all those kinds of people. And this is a likely scenario, okay? And how would the economy develop there? You know, what would be the kind of money that they will, I mean, how will they pay you? How will this kind of economy uh, kickstart? Because at the beginning, it's just basically you go to Mars, you take your orders from Earth, obviously, and you have job to do. And maybe you're paid by your government, but the money is completely useless to you on Mars. So it goes to your family if you have one. But if you're like a colonist who has nobody, and then you go there and you don't need like Earth money, okay, that you're completely, that's, that Earth money is completely useless to you. You left everyone behind. You have nobody, you have no family. You go to Mars, okay, and there will be a lot of people like that. So you need a Martian economy. And... I wonder how it would be. You know, I'm curious that would it be just very quickly like that kind of inequality that we have on Earth right now? You have suddenly very rich or poor, or will we have the kind of utopian socialism that we've been talking about right now? I mean, and we'll have like high technology because we are on Mars right now. We've terraformed Mars, meaning again, we have high tech stuff. Maybe we can even have like robotic workers to do the ugly jobs? I think, uh, for one thing, I think at first, like, the difficulty of, of getting to Mars, of, like, accessing the planet itself, means that you would only take what you need. So, like, the people that would go would have, like, specific jobs and specific attributes to do those jobs. You would take only the amount of resources that you needed to accomplish the goal. Um, so in that way, it would be very a very structured society where like everyone would have a place, everyone would have a role, 
um, their the the needs would all be met because you like you know in a space like that like you need someone who's gonna patch the holes in your like environment or oh well you said it's like terraformed or whatever but um so everyone would have their own place and have their value like perceived value in society i think if like if it went for several generations and then you introduce the element of choice where there's like more people than the necessary amount of jobs so it's like we have enough engineers we don't need all of these engineers then people get to choose like i'm going to go do something else or i want to be an artist or a craftsman or something like that that's sort of when the when it falls out of that rigid structure and the the jobs aren't totally necessary or perceived to be necessary i think maybe that's when the it opens up to to perceived levels of inequality does that make sense yeah i guess so i mean at the end of the day if you're on international space station okay you're like what 10 people max and then you have a job to do you cannot say i don't want to do this anymore but if you're if you're going to a martian colony that's like 20 30,000 strong and then let's say you went there as a like a animal specialist you know like an animal trainer or i don't know someone who like who breeds cows maybe you know and then you suddenly realize that you have a talent for something else okay you realize that you're you actually want to make music <laughs> you say i don't want to like you know uh breed cows anymore i want to uh, i just want to make music from now on you know then what is your situation what is your i think that's what you're saying right you know then then you start having some kind of inequality because you need people who need to breed those cows, but you don't want to do this anymore, and we can only get the next batch of colonists two years later. You don't want to do that. And there is this guy who kind of does it, but who's doing something else. So we need to give this job to him because you don't want to do this anymore. Or are you going to enforce that job to that person? You know, no. You know, you can make music as much as you want, like a, like a hobby. <laughs> and but you you sorry, sir, you gotta breed these cows, or then you then you have a totalitarian society. Then you don't have any utopia. So it's interesting, right? I mean, where do you draw the line? I mean, where do you? How does a utopian society turn into a totalitarian one? Uh, and this is how I, I guess you know when people because people are people, right? You know they're, they're unpredictable. You cannot say even someone with like a high you know status might want to say, "Hey, I don't want to be a president anymore. I'm just going to make music." And this has happened before. People like abdicating their thrones for a woman, like the Edward, the British monarch, who who abdicated his throne for for you know for love. So these things could happen, and and then you kind of have have these in, imbalances, and you know, and how are you going to deal with that? That's the question, actually. Are you going to enforce the job to people, or because at the end of the day, you're on Mars, okay? We we are talking about we're not talking about Earth. This is sci-fi. This is the future. You're on Mars. You cannot risk. Uh, a colony collapse on Mars because then you die. Okay, there's no joking about this. Actually, my point is that I fear that 
it can easily turn into a totalitarian society in a in a blink of an eye. You know, that's very easy uh, that that it could happen. It depends. I, um, you know, America has like the the early British colonies as like sort of an example that we can follow of like um, people who came over from Europe who were like unprepared and totally failed at being colonists and whole colonies were like wiped out by like disease or there's the super famous colony that everyone went crazy because uh, of now they postulate there was like some type of fungus on the corn. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong, but I think it also like is, is plausible that you could achieve like the, the balanced utopian society that I think a lot of us would want, you know, to be able to have room for those personal choices as well as, you know, doing the work that sustains the colony and makes life livable. Who knows? It might work. I don't know. No one's ever tried. Every, like, all of human history has been a history of wealth disparity or economic disparity that some people have and some people don't have. So no one's ever, like, actually tried to achieve a balanced society full of people getting their needs met, you know? One thought I want to add, though, I mean, I think people people in small groups in the form of what we perceive as cults have tried it and many with kind of the the cleanest like nicest of intent but i think the the consistent um story that 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 comes out of those uh, uh experiments is at some point certain uh, human traits or human tendencies make an appearance and, uh, you know, like power becomes intoxicating. Um, people like people start to look for a leader when there is none. And someone who is not fit for a leader shows up and like destroys the whole thing. Um, and it, it just like goes on and on and on. And that coupled with, how indoctrinated we are to, you know, be critical of anything that sits outside of, you know, societal norms in the form of a cult, we also tend to like try to destroy it. So I think, I think we have, or, or, or certain, in certain instances we have tried, it's just, uh, it's just been, it just has not been successful. Yeah. Obviously, when you said cults, that's kind of a different because the leaders of cults are not quite elected people. They're actually formed by those people. They're like really charismatic and most of them are, as you said, are like drunk with power and, and then turns into a big orgy or like a big like a suicide fest or whatever. Most of them end horribly wrong or like people get, even if it doesn't go that way, people get hurt or they're like, abused or in many ways so i think again at the end of the day we need to consider that you're on a planet okay that any kind of mistake will lead to your death with with it, you, again you don't want to risk a colony collapse so you don't have the kind of luxury to play around with the society uh, like you know justinian does 
because Justinian plays his cards. He says, okay, I'm going to spend this money. I'm going to build all these, like, I'm going to be Hagia Sophia. I'm going to conquer Italy again, whatever the cost. Because at the end of the day, what is the worst that can happen? I mean, it didn't just become worse after that. It just, like, declined. But Byzantine Empire lasted for a thousand years, one millennia. I mean, but on a planet, if you just become... Justinian instead of Anastasius, okay, then you just risk a lot. You risk everything. So I think, for instance, if we, like, let's say, sent, okay, let's take this to the next step. Uh, so Mars is kind of close, okay? If you start losing people, like, if there's, like, an outbreak of some kind of Martian disease, like, let's say you, you unearthed some kind of bacteria, it affected the people, uh, the next two years... Uh, in, the, in the next like uh, colonist uh, like travel window, uh, you can you can just like re uh, uh, reimburse. You know, you can just send more. You can send more doctors or send people who are not needed. Let's say that you're sending people to the stars. Like for instance, like in the movie Passengers. I mean, we I just keep talking about this movie a lot, and it's not a great movie, by the way, but it's got like really good points in it. So uh, there, it, does, it takes about around like 90 years to uh, arrive to the colony. So let's say you're sending people to many habitable planets outside our solar system for, you know, you're sending like thousands of people like, or generation ships for them to colonize. And I think each of them would end up being different. Because, I mean, obviously... Uh, this is different. One of the things that's different about it is that if you're sending colonists to another star system, you monitor these people. You do a lot of background checks. You know, you do psychology. You don't, you don't send, like, murderers there, okay? <laughs> you know, you just send people who are like... Like when we do, when we're picking our astronauts, you're just picking people who can, like... Who, who's not going to freak out when they stay on International Space Station for like 60 days because any of us can like, we will not be able to maybe, it's hard to stand. You're like in a tin can. Uh, it's just tin can. It's, it's very unnerving. You know, if anything happens to you, if you get like terribly sick, you will not be taken to the hospital immediately. You need to wait for the next Soyuz, uh, you know, uh, shuttle. So, and if you're in a colony, if like in another star system, then anything can happen and you really need to monitor the people you need to do a lot of background checks to people however things can still happen because this is human nature you know you can be justinian at any moment right and also no no matter how much you're uh, testing the the personality traits and their you know appetites for whatever psychological strife it, 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 you you're still kind of doing it before the actual test which is what happens when you get there there's only so much simulation you know we can do before things get really weird except it's a very very expensive experiment you know if you say hey let's send 2000 people to the next star system uh, let's see what, what what happens. I don't think anyone can afford such an experiment because it's extremely expensive. You know, if you remember in one of the episodes, I was saying I don't think maybe we'll ever 
colonize other star systems because it's too expensive and it's kind of unnecessary because you can actually colonize the space in solar system in our solar system and colonize the planets and you can you don't even need to live on mars you can live on like orbital structures and everything so anyway i said that because it's like ridiculously expensive so you don't want to experiment you don't want to mix that kind of experiment with with something that expensive so i think you need a totalitarian structure you know i think a utopian maybe a utopian society might come later it could start as utopian in a way utopian socialist but i predict that it would end up being a totalitarian and maybe maybe later when you start having kind of nations on that planet you maybe end up having wars over resources or just like out of spite or anything and then it will settle down i mean think about european union you know or, or think about united states you know they were like different places at you know once it was not just one thing you know there was like a there was like a huge civil war in america's history it was not like one thing even now people are talking about like you know secession from uh, the union like texas or california whatever that's a huge achievement that a lot of people came together and formed the you know united states of america or european union but it only happened after a huge strife you know after the first and second world war so maybe then maybe people when they realize that uh when you have like millions of people dying suddenly because of this war they will like stop and think okay just you know we need to make sure we don't make the same mistakes again that's what european union said after the second world war they said never again okay this should never happen. Khan is okay, channeling his best Harry yeah. Seldon right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you. That's what you sound like. You're you're setting up the foundation. <laughs> yeah, actually, um, there are, there is another series. I just thought about it. I didn't. I didn't take note. It's called Interdependency series. Okay, let me just type it. Dependency. I've read the first two books. It was pretty good. Uh, the Collapsing Empire, The Consuming Fire, The Last Emperor. The it's by, these book series are by John Scalzi. He's the one who wrote Old Man's War, which was a great series. Especially the first book was fantastic. So he wrote these interdependency series. So in these series, you have some kind of a galactic empire-ish kind of society. You have an emperor, empress, and then... The way it works is that in the galaxy there is like a they're like something like hyperlanes. It's called the flow in these books, and they connect these star systems together. They don't know who made these. I think I think they're like it's a natural occurrence in these books. So, but uh, the example is, for instance, you can quickly go from uh, like solar system to Alpha Centauri, but you cannot directly go to Bernard Star. So you need to go to Alpha Centauri first, and then Alpha Centauri is like connected to Bernard Star. So, uh, not every planet is connected to each other, but there's like a, there's sort of a pattern, and like uh, traveling between uh, star systems is really fast using the flow, and uh, so interdependency, this kind of economical system where 
what we have right now on Earth. So your country, whatever it is, you don't you don't need to produce every single thing. Okay, uh, here is an example. Like I think like eighty five percent of world's hazelnut comes from Turkey, from where I am from. So this means that if you're from another country, you really do not need to produce hazelnut because you can import from Turkey. So, and that's also the point. That was the point of European Union. But if this kind of breaks, then you have a problem. So we are having that right now. For instance, with the Russo-Ukrainian war, because we are dependent on like Russian oil and like natural gas, and when Russia is like cutting it off. We kind of have a problem, like an economical problem here, because uh, everyone is kind of dependent on each other. And unless you're like North Korea, who is also dependent on China, by the way, who is not self-dependent, if you don't want to be poor like North Korea, then you got to be part of this dependency anyway. So I think these are like great books, by the way. I kind of, especially the first two, the first, uh, the first book is pretty good. It's pretty interesting. John Scalzi is a great writer. So I think this kind of society is obviously based on Earth, kind of the system we have right now, the capitalist system, but it kind of works. So um, maybe that is the solution. If you can quickly travel between the stars, then yeah, you just don't want to, you don't need to produce everything yourself. You can just you know, buy from someone else. I as I mean we're we're almost uh, like a few layers out from the you know how do we build or rebuild Death Star uh, uh, track, but I think one thing that comes up for me over and over in, in in these conversations is the closer we get to imagining a a an equal and just utopia we also get closer to losing our individuality. And I think as, assuming this, this room right now is, is mostly, uh, you know, that they're living in some sort of westernized uh, uh, democratic society, as we, as we get closer to this idea of, um, you know, perfect equality and perfect equity across across its people, we also start to get further and further away from the idea of an individual self. And I think that's very hard for us to imagine past a certain point, because we've been just so indoctrinated with this idea of, you know, we are all special, unique snowflakes, and every person is different, and we are all, you know, uh, unique it's very, it's very, the, the thought experiment kind of hits a wall at some point because even in theory, I think it's very hard for us to imagine us true equality in the form of our differences not being recognized. Well, is that, uh, is that just like a side effect of like Western world uh, philosophy? Because I feel like in other nations, like I was watching a TikTok. Uh, of this woman from Africa who was talking about uh, moving to America and being taken aback by the rogue individuality that permeates all of like American culture, where the individual is more important than anything else. 
And isn't that just sort of a thing of like the idea of equality being perceived as a threat because we've had so much like personal freedom and personal choice? Yes, I think that that tracks that makes a lot of sense. Um, it is it does become the the idea of equality does become a threat because it, it is equally it is just immediately uh, uh, connected with like the loss of self, loss of your your self worth or, or or your standing in in society. And I think don't need to get into the deep politics of today, but I think in the United States especially, that's kind of kind of what we're seeing that like this this narrative of like some sort of supremacy, whether it's based on race or social standing or, or economics or whatever, that has been so pushed to its limit that even the slightest readjustment in equality between the parties um, is perceived as like, existential threat yeah i think i think we have so long to go before we can even imagine a truly equal society whether we have you know perceived differences between people's professions or standing or or not i think that as like we are now swinging to the other side of the spectrum where you know your neighbor who kind of looks different oh, you know, they got a nice car too. And, and you're like, what? That's not supposed to happen. Does that, uh, does that mean I'm losing my standing in society? Does that mean that I'm losing my individuality? That's kind of where we are um, right now. And it's a pretty weird place to be. And that's a failed experiment anyway with communism. I mean, it's just... Um, <clears throat> I mean, we've seen that in, in, in many parts of the world. We're still seeing it. In, in again in North Korea or in in some way in China a little bit. I mean, China is far from being a, a communist country, but um, it's capitalist to outsiders and communist to uh, communist internally somehow. But in Soviet times or in the uh, Warsaw Pact countries uh, during the Cold War, you do not see any kind of that kind of utopic or like. Uh, equal society at all because i think that's human nature humans don't want to be equal i mean some people will want to be more equal than the others i mean there's a friend of mine and their parents they they lived in east germany in gdr during the cold war and i talked to them and uh, and they told about it and you know you're forced to do those things you know you're just like the kind of equality is enforced However, because humans are corrupt in nature, I think in general, I'm not saying everybody, but in general, you know, some people eventually, for instance, in that kind of system, what happens is, you know, every, I don't know, I can't remember, but every like three, four years, you need to change houses. I think it was five years or something. You cannot live in the same place because some houses are better than the others. So you need to switch. However, if you're somebody that's close to the government, then you get picked to the better houses. Or, for instance, um, uh, in, in Eastern Germany, you need to apply for a TV or you need to apply for a car, and then you need to wait for like four years to get that, you know, that tiny, cute car. 
But again, if you're close to the government, then you just get it in like three months or something. So again, it's like a quote-unquote communist society, but it's far from being equal. Some people are more equal than the others. These are like the uh, um, either people that are close to the government or like modern nobles. So that's right. Um, and and they're totalitarian, and they, you don't have like freedom of speech, and then you cannot like travel. You know, you cannot. What you can do is extremely limited. You cannot talk or say anything bad about the government. You know, it's just how it works. If you want to be equal, then <laughs> this is it. This is this is the best. This is the best we could do. So, I have a question. Um, how did Darth Vader pay all the stormtroopers? And are they a paid? Were they a paid group of mercenaries, or were they uh, previously, you know, uh, like were they were they kind of half slaves that were turned into to soldiers? Well, what is the story there? No. Um, so here's what happens in Star Wars after the Clone Wars uh, and Order sixty six which is basically hunting down all the Jedi by Darth Sidious. So what happens is Darth Sidious gets Anakin Skywalker as his apprentice, who becomes Darth Vader, whom we love. <laughs> so, uh, so Darth Vader doesn't pay anyone. He works for Darth Sidious. That's his master. Doesn't work for him. Uh-huh. He, uh, he is his apprentice. Think of like in martial arts, you know, it's just like... A, Darth Vader doesn't need to be paid. You know, he's just given... He's given, like, a castle on planet Mustafar. He has his own fortress. He doesn't need it for luxury. He needs that for... Because Mustafar is very strong in in the dark side of the Force. It's a planet... It's the planet... The lava planet where um, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin makes their final duel. The duel of the fates. So and then you know, uh, as you know, he he defeats Anakin and he Anakin is mutilated. Darth Sidious saves Anakin and he just gives him like a you know cybernetic body. That's how it happens. So it is Darth Sidious who pays everybody. Oh, and the other thing is, uh, before that event, what happens is that because of the Clone Wars, hence the name, uh, the, the the Republic is suddenly they have these all these clones which was which was ordered by some jedi master some while ago and the the republic doesn't even know about this which is like a mystery you know when did the when did the republic order the making of all these clones so the clone wars is basically uh, the wars between republic and the uh, separatists who wants to secede from the republic and they have droids so it's a war between droids and uh, clones. However, after um, the Clone Wars and the Order 66, all these clones are let go. They're just like obsolete. They're not anymore. So so the stormtroopers are not those clones. They're people. And they're trained in the Imperial Army. So they're hired in the army and they're paid by the Empire. And and because Darth Sidious turns the Republic into the Empire, he holds the highest power, and now he has the resources of the whole Empire, of the whole, there are like thousands of planets and so many resources, so he can easily pay. And he's a tyrant, you know, <laughs> he doesn't need to think about the people, he's not, you know, oh, let's give some to the people, you know. Obviously, 
Because if you're a tyrant, what you need to do, you cannot take away from everyone, okay? You just look at every kind of dictator in history, like emperor or whatever, you need to keep your nobles happy, okay? You need to make people who are close to you rich. Otherwise, people just, you, you cannot last long. Yeah, it just, so I assume, I mean, you can see in some cases in Star Wars, it's not like quite clear, but I've read it in some of these books who are like canon, in the Disney canon books. Um, they're, they're not, some of these things are not quite explained in the movies, but in the books, you know, you just need to keep your nobles happy. You need to make sure your, the people are not too poor, but they're poor enough that they cannot uh, rebel against you so that they don't have the resources to rebel against you. So even if you want to be a, in the rebellion, you need resources, okay? I think the rebellion, if you look at the earlier episodes, uh, the original episodes of Star Wars, uh, the rebellion have resources and they're like dwindling, you know. However, they have a Jedi. You know, they have heroes and they have Jedis. Uh, it's an unlikely story, but also likely because there is no way that kind of puny rebellion will win against that kind of huge empire. What happens is Luke Skywalker beats Darth Vader, and Darth Vader, he's extremely strong in the dark side of the Force, but because of Luke Skywalker and his light side strength, he becomes weaker because... As a dark side user, you need to tap into the dark side of force more and more. The more evil you are, the, the stronger you are, you know, kind of. Let's make it that way. You know, you need to feed from your anger. But when uh, Darth Vader meets Luke Skywalker, he kind of starts losing that edge, you know. Uh, and, um, and then he becomes eventually weaker because uh, Luke Skywalker single-handedly kind of beats Darth Vader, and then uh, the Emperor is killed by Darth Vader, if you remember, in uh, Return of the Jedi. Like, uh, Darth right. Vader picks the Emperor and throws it into the abyss. So, so there you go. Then, then you just got rid of the tyrant. And then the rest is kind of easier, you know. And these things kind of happened throughout history. You know, you have, like, great emperors being assassinated, and then your empire going into kind of decline or taken over by a rebellion or like a usurper. This happened many times over. So you have like heroes and villains throughout history as well. And this is kind of likely. Obviously, it's not just Luke Skywalker, but his friends <laughs> as well, because he had friends, <laughs> you know. But, the, the, you know, the evil guys are always lonely, you know. They're lonely, but the good guys have friends, so... Friends win. <laughs> just, just another week of Ton tearing apart Star Wars. Yeah, I, I can, I can hear the seething, like the, 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 the like secret critical look at the whole thing. It's great. No, it, it's just I love Star Wars. That's it. I'm a huge fan. That's why I'm so critical about. I'm not critical about this, by the way. I'm critical about the new series. You know. <laughs> the seven, eight, nine, especially, because because I love it. That's why. Otherwise, I wouldn't care much about it. But also, it's interesting. You know, it's it's an interesting topic. That, um, I mean, I think I'm I'm just 
uh, I think we should do a specific Star Wars episode and not talk about how <laughs> how the stormtroopers are paid, but then I think we should talk about things like force and that kind of uh, mystical stuff in, in sci-fi. It should be another episode. But I think when it comes to economy, yeah, Star Wars kind of fails, <laughs> especially the new ones. The old ones kind of work, I think. They're, they kind of make sense. They get paid in Vader coin, and Vader sends out weekly emails saying, Mint my NFT, bros. And airdrops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dark side. <laughs> airdrops from the dark side. And then if you yeah, don't and mint, you, you feel that little thing coming coming for your neck. A little, little choky choke. Yeah, action. exactly. That means that yeah. means you listed below floor price <laughs> when, you, when you feel your neck tighten up. <laughs> oh, man. I think you'd have oh, like... I love that. I think you'd have like light and dark side tokenomics, you know, they'll be like different, you know, one of them is like burning, the other one's <laughs> like air dropping. Cool. So it's, um, I think uh, we're good for this week. Yeah. Okay. So this has been uh, Saifi and Tonic. Thanks everyone for joining. We will be next Friday at the same time. Remember it was, it is 2 p.m. East every Friday from our Twitter space. Uh, we are Tan, Don, who are the creators of the project, and Toby. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining. You can listen to us. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Thanks, all. Thanks, Chippy. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Okay. Good night. Bye. Thanks. Bye, guys. Bye. You've been sipping sci-fi and tonic with your hosts, Tan Tuncha and Don Demish. Brought to you by Void Armada, a collection of science fiction digital collectibles. For the latest news, episode info, and more, follow us on Twitter at Void underscore Armada. And tune in live on Twitter Spaces every Friday. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us.